Discussion over dinner. This is our home. I came to listen to you, to talk with you. Discussion over dinner is sponsored and underwritten by State Street Community Church and the Pack Center. Welcome to discussion over dinner. Tonight we're going to have a uh, deep and robust conversation about mental health. And to give you a, a clue of why we're doing this, uh, we believe that uh, the best way to be good neighbors in Laporte is to have conversations. And the best way to have conversations is to break bread with each other. And so uh, we uh, have created these spaces to um, hopefully cultivate good conversation amongst people that are different than you. We don't expect everyone that comes to these events to agree uh, with us or to agree with me. The whole point is to learn from each other while we have uh, these conversations. Uh, each conversation has a panel, and I'll introduce them later. But before we do that, a couple quick notes. I want to thank our team uh, of uh, Joel Crane and Jason Clemens who prepared tonight's meal. It was fantastic. Can you give them a round of applause? Also, we have uh, other team members that come, and they, they help kind of uh, make sure this event goes well. Gwen Hollinger sets up our uh, room in here. Um, Ellen Cooper gets all of our drinks and stuff ready, and she was here early um, to help with other things. Uh, Becky Crane, obviously, Crane Train, you know, puts it all together. She's the glue that holds it all together. Um, and then, uh, who am I missing? Somebody else was here. Other people. Huh? Kelly, thank you. Kelly Tanger, who helps with content. Kelly, uh, during, the week, or during the month, will send me articles, which is really helpful to say, hey, this might kind of spark some conversation or spark some ideas for our conversation. And Kelly's a great volunteer as well and a leadership team member here at State Street. Uh, we value these times together. Some of you, um, maybe it's your first time here. Uh, some of you are part of this community, and we are glad that you're here. We think it's important to talk. We think it's even more important to listen. And so as we kind of build this night together, and as we have the next hour to an hour and a half together in a conversation with uh, these panelists, I want to invite you to text numbers. You can text this number here uh, to the question, uh, text questions to the number 219-690-8057, and that will come directly to me, and we will uh, present the panel with questions. Obviously, last month we had way too many questions and not enough time, but we will... Uh, Ask as many questions as we can. Um, and I want to invite all of uh, our friends who are watching online as well to text questions uh, from wherever you're at watching this, uh, and we will get them uh, as well. I want to invite you again. Share this. Uh, after this event, we will put um, this video and audio podcast online. You can go to iTunes and subscribe or uh, Google Play. Uh, we believe that Laporte needs to have more conversations. 
We're going to continue doing these, um, and as we do, hopefully uh, we'll create a better place to live, to worship, and to work. Uh, One of the inspirations for me for our discussion over dinner is a guy named John Wesley. And if you go here, you know I have a uh, fanboy crush of John Wesley. Uh, But if you've ever noticed that um, there's a Methodist church in about every township uh, in Laporte. And it was Wesley's vision to put a, a church in every township because he believed that the church ought to be the center and the hub of a community's health. In that, they should be a place that people can get educated. They should be a place where people can be made to feel well. They should be a place where you should be able to wrestle with the idea of God and humanity. They should be the center of culture in a community. They should be the center of social work in a community. And unfortunately, the church in America, we're we're not doing that all that well, but we believe we can reclaim that. And so State Street's vision is to reclaim that vision. And so wherever you're at in your faith, wherever you're at in your uh, life, you are welcome here, and we are glad that you're here tonight. So I want to introduce our panelists uh, before we uh, get going, and they'll come up as I introduce them. Very excited about our panel tonight. I think they are uh, representing a diverse uh, group of people that are around this topic of mental health, and I think uh, we'll be able to learn quite a bit from them. Uh, The first one I want to introduce is my friend Shannon Hannon, if you want to welcome Shannon up. Shannon is a a friend of mine and a a state shooter here, Um, but uh, she also is the vice president of medical services at the Bowen Center. And uh, so actually, uh, our kids play t-ball at the same time, and I've already been able to be informed and instructed and educated many times by Shannon about the idea of mental health, about the, the hurdles that we have in mental health care and healthcare providing. And so... Uh, I encourage you, again, to go ahead, and if you have a a question to direct towards Shannon, you can put that in your text as well. So thank you for being here, Shannon. Uh, Tyrone Miller, Ty Miller, is a board member, a State Street board member here, and Ty is a friend of mine as well. Ty is a a mental health advocate. I've learned much from Ty over the years um, based on his life, and and he'll explain a little bit more um, about his advocacy for his mother who um, is uh, struggling with uh, her own mental health issues, and how to advocate for others. One of the um, areas that we get the most questions about is maybe you're not going through a mental health issue. Maybe you don't feel depressed or have anxiety, but you know someone that does, and you want to love them well, you want to understand them better. Ty has helped educate me on that. He's helped uh, teach me some things so that I know a little bit more about mental health and how to be a good friend and family member to those who are going through there. So, Ty, thank you so much for being here. And finally, please uh, welcome up uh, Robin Miller. Robin is an uh, instructor at PNW in the social work program. She's also a licensed therapist. If you read uh, Robin's name, usually professionally, there'll be lots and lots of letters after there. Um, and... You are, for, for us anyway, you are a voice for clinical help. You are in the, not only education part of it, but you, also, you are also helping those who are struggling. So from a, a clinician point of view, Robin is here to help uh, 
teach us and help us uh, learn more about those who are struggling. So thank you so much for being here, Raman. So um, we'll get started. And again, I encourage you to, uh, uh, to text us in questions, and we will definitely um, answer as many as we can. So why don't I, uh, why don't you guys, each one of you, uh, tell your story a little bit, how you got here, and uh, uh, what you do, and how your life impact, is impacted by the mental health uh, arena. So I, you saved the first seat for me here, so I could go first. Um, you know, I have been interested and curious about people since I was a young child and just kind of grew up always knowing that um, I wanted to be a social worker. Um, and for those of you in the audience that um, don't know, sometimes social workers have the stigma of being the ones that take children away. Um, and and while Many of us do work in the area of child welfare. Um, we do many, many other things, um, including working with people struggling with mental illness. Um, I, uh, so I pursued my degree in social work, went on to get my master's degree. I've worked in many different areas of social work, um, from child welfare to mental health and trauma and Native Americans on the reservation and um, so many, many different areas. And I just began teaching. Um, I've just taught for three years at PNW, so it's a fairly new venture for me, but I really find it to be um, inspiring to uh, train up-and-coming social workers to, um, to do the work well. Um, so I'm happy to be here and um, will be eager to answer the questions that I can and learn from my fellow panelists. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Shannon? So um, I, um, in undergrad, uh, was taking um, you know a slew of uh, undergraduate prerequisites, and psychology was the one class I really enjoyed. So lo and behold, I declared my major as psychology. And so the next thing I know, I'm graduating and trying to figure out where it is I want to be. And there was a local community mental health center who was kind enough to take me as a new grad in. And I worked there for five years and quickly realized I had more of a business mind than a clinical mind. And so I shifted and got a master's degree in business and, and knew I wanted to work in healthcare, making a difference for people. Um, access to healthcare has always been something I've been passionate about in, in my role. Um, and so just recently, um, this past October, I joined the Bowen Center, um, which is a community mental health center down in central Indiana, um, focusing on um, access to psychiatric as well as community mental health services. Um, and so I really felt the mission and the calling to get back into um, mental health, kind of back to my roots where I first started and where my training was. And um, it's, it's been a joy working alongside of, of folks very similar to Robin who are committed to um, helping people the best that they can. So, Hi. Uh, Hello. Yeah, um, I was introduced to uh, mental health issues before I could even speak. Uh, shortly after I was born, uh, my mom suffered from postpartum depression. Uh, she was diagnosed as bipolar and schizoaffective disorder before I was born. So uh, the birth kind of threw her hormones off, and uh, she made a significant suicide attempt uh, when I was just two or three months old, um, has made four or five since then in my life. Um, I'm her only son, and my parents are divorced. So 
I get to play a role of advocate uh, for all 40 years of my life on this earth uh, for her, and um, I married into a family that also uh, has some mental health issues on, uh, on my wife's side, on, the, on my in-law's side. So I've been able to advocate for them, too, from, from some of my experience. Uh, I have been in many states and many state hospitals and in front of judges and in front of psychiatrists my entire life advocating for my mom and others. So um, I'm passionate about it and um, uh, here to answer questions uh, if you've got a family member or a friend or someone that, uh, that you think needs you to advocate for them. Thanks, Ty. Thank you so much for being here. And w- one of our goals for these conversations is also to destigmatize what many of our brothers and sisters who have mental uh, uh, health issues are going through to hopefully allow you to understand that you're not alone. Um, you're not alone, and um, you, you, have, you have advocates. You have friends, and uh, those of us that might not be dealing with mental health issues, we ought to uh, seek better understanding um, for those who are as we create better communities and cultures of, um, of care and empathy. So my first question is for Shannon. Um, this is a, a question that I've been wondering as I've looked at Indiana healthcare indexes. Obviously, we've got healthcare issues in our state as a whole, um, but mental health care especially. Yeah. Um, I was looking at the 2008 um, annual state of mental health in America report by uh, the Mental Health America uh, organization, and we are, according to their metrics, which really puts a, a, bu- a bunch of different statistics together, mm-hmm. we are in the worst five states for mental health care in the country. Um, and for those of you that want to know who is worse than us, um, because I did, I'm like, okay, who can we gloat over? Um, <laughs> it's Rhode Island, Colorado, New Hampshire, and Oregon. So take that, ducks. Um, but um, in America, 18% of adults struggle with mental health problems annually. In Indiana, that number is 20.5%. Mm-hmm. Do you have any in- kind of... Why do you think that is? What, what are you guys finding? Where is Indiana um, at, and why, why are those numbers so bad here? I don't necessarily agree that they're bad. Yeah. Um, I, I'd like to say I think, first of all, that statistic is probably understated. Mm-hmm. I think that far many more Americans, Hoosiers, struggle with, with mental illness. Um, you know, what we're seeing is that Indiana is really aggressive getting involved with um, students, when they're in elementary and high schools and getting more involved. So just just because the statistic may appear bad because there's more prevalence, it's not necessarily that. There is a lot of access to treatment. There are a lot of good community partners in the schools. So I don't know that it's necessarily a negative thing. So are you saying then maybe it's because we're better at identifying? I think I can tell you... Uh, DCS cases also in the state of Indiana, we have far more reported DCS cases. Is that better or worse? Don't get me started. Don't get me started. You know, and I know you know this statistic, but does that mean that we're just better at reporting it and identifying it, or does that mean that we have a larger issue? Um, From what we're seeing, you know, the need is great. Um, What is your your feeling on that? Do you think it is because we just have better health care reporting here in do you have an opinion on that too, Robin? I mean, I don't know that it's necessarily better. I think that um, 
the need is great. Yeah. I mean, that's our biggest issue is trying to find a way to meet the need that we're seeing. You know, wait times are far beyond what I think is acceptable. I'm sure Ty has experience in, in advocating for family members in that, that there's just not enough resources to go around. Um, and I think that that's part of it, um, which is why I feel like that statistic is underreported. Um, but, you know, like so I said. So you, you, you think that number is actually higher than 20%? I do. Okay. Absolutely, I do. Because the vast majority of the population that, that I'm working alongside, 50% of those are adults. And, you know, we're serving tens of thousands of covered lives across the state. So I, I think that number is understated. Absolutely. Sure. That's great. Um, do you have anything to add to that, Robin? Anything no. in your finding? Or, okay, great. Um, Indiana also has, um, and this maybe speaks to what you're saying with our ability to identify youth in problems. We had Chris Albert here last uh, month who is a principal at Riley, and I know one of the things they're dealing with is um, anxiety in children. Um, they see an increase in anxiety, and not just like I'm a little bit stressed, but almost crippling anxiety in kids. Um, Robin, you, you've worked with children. What, are you seeing that increase as well? What do you think that might be caused from? Um, can you help us out at Riley, please? Mm. You know, I think I could I I think there's a generally heightened sense of anxiety in our culture. Um, I think there are a lot of pressures on families, and I think that when there's um, you know when a culture is experiencing a lot of stress and anxiety, I think it naturally trickles down to our children. You know, they pick up on their parents' stress, um, whatever that might be, and so I think that. You know, children are our mirror. They're a reflection of the health of our overall communities. I like that. Children are a mirror. Um, and, and, and I think that's absolutely true. I think, you know, as we live in a, a, a community that has higher poverty, that mm -hmm. has all of these things where, where lots of reasons to be anxious about maybe not enough money at home, not enough of these things, it, it, does, it does impact so many other things outside of that. So... Um, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Ty. Yeah, anytime. This is just from an article that I read just today in The Independent. So the U.K. this week passed a law so that they now are teaching uh, mental health and mental health awareness in all their schools uh, because I guess there were 100,000 people that signed a petition to take to Parliament to, to change this so that their schools, they're, I mean, they're teaching peer, recognizing if your peers are having problems as, as children because they've had a significant increase in self-harm for, for their youth and kids too. So it's not just a U.S. culture issue. It's um, at least, <laughs> at least a, a Western civilization issue um, and perhaps a global issue. I don't know. Ty, I, I have a question for you because I, I, I think, um, again, on, on your angle, as, as uh, Shannon's involved in the healthcare advocacy, or healthcare trying to get access, Robin's obviously a clinician. For you, as someone who, is love, who loves uh, someone who is going through serious uh, uh, mental issues right now, take, take, take me through how you made sense of that as a child. Not... Not every child is super empathetic, right? Um, so take me through, did you have a, a season of you know, not understanding? Did you have a season of frustration? How did, how did you make sense of that as a child to an adult? Yeah, uh, good question. I mean, I think uh, kind of the school of hard knocks, right? I mean, just kind of learn as you go. Um, I was fortunate enough to be born at a time where uh, medication just has done amazing things. I think uh, my mom would not be alive today if it wasn't for the medication that she's gotten at specific times in her life. And 
um, with her uh, illness, uh, if she kind of goes through highs and lows, uh, and, and so when she goes through a high, she'll think she's fine and doesn't need medication, and then it spirals downward. So I don't know if anyone deals with that, but it's a it's a tough time as an advocate. Uh, you kind of have to time your <laughs> your conversations and your advocacy when uh, when the person that's dealing with things um, can hear it. And, uh, for instance, uh, when she was depressed, I got her to agree for a power of attorney for me, which she would never would have done if she was on a high because she would have thought that she was fine and would not have wanted me um, to help. So uh, it, it's things like that that you learn uh, growing up. Uh, it just kind of, as you, as you go. Um, you, Did you have to learn to separate your, your mother's responses to you from how you know she felt about you? You know what I mean? If there's highs or lows... Did you have to figure out a way to balance your perception of that? Yeah, and once again, I think just we all adapt to what we are around, our environments. So it just was, it's been my life, my entire life. So I don't remember a aha moment. It's just always (laughs) been the way way it's been. She's always been my mom, and I've always been her son, and it's just always always the way it's been. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's... It's weird to see uh, someone you love not acting like the person that you believe that they are. You know they are. Um, I mean, her personality, I mean, she's like a different person. Mm-hmm. And so that's, a, that's an odd thing, and, and that's one of the weird things with, or at least not weird, but it's, it's definitely different with mental illness than most other illnesses. Um, back to my point about uh, advocating when she's on a low rather than a high, I mean, uh, oftentimes people that are you know, dealing with mental illness don't know that they're sick or think that they're sick. And so um, that's very rare because most illnesses, people do know that they're sick and, and seek help. So there's, there's things like that that you have to kind of learn and figure out along the way um, that I think make it a, a little bit uh, different than perhaps other types of diseases or illnesses. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's those things that you, that, you, that you learn to figure out that you um, kind of get yourself in the weeds and... and uh, once again, it's, I, I know when, throughout my life, uh, if she's acting in a way that's not her, it's the illness. It's not her. Um, and it's, it's just so interesting that we have medication for a lot of that. I mean, it takes time to get it right. Um, it's, it's not like take a high cholesterol pill and your cholesterol is lower. I mean, it takes a lot of time. I mean, I've spent nine months at one point in and out of hospitals up at the Mayo Clinic um, for months and, and going around trying to find the right treatment for her. But, uh, but there are great treatments out there these days, and um, I don't think we could have said that 50 years ago. So uh, I'm, I'm glad that I've grown up in this day and age, at least uh, dealing with an issue like this. Yeah, thanks, Ty. Uh, great response. Um, this question is for Shannon and uh, Robin, or Robin, um, either one. What is the state of mental health care in LaPorte County? What is your opinion? This isn't, a, this isn't a scientific answer, but what is your impulse there? What do you think, um, to be transparent with? There, there just aren't enough resources. Um, we're falling short of, of meeting the need. Um, I, I see you're agreeing. I just, it's, it's heart-wrenching because um, when I first started working um, for a community mental health center here in Laporte, you know, I'd lived here as, as you know, growing up through middle school and high school here, and I realized I was in a bubble, and I just had no idea how great the need was until I was alongside serving 
this population. And and I know that it, it's it's probably similar or um, has even the need has even increased. And and that's kind of what blew my mind is I had no idea. And I think a lot of people are unaware of how great the need is, um, which is why in turn there aren't a lot of resources available. Uh, Shannon, when you say resources, what do you mean by resources? Doctors or clinics? Or what do you, what do you mean by that? I mean access to treatment. I mean people like Robin who mm-hmm. are, are coming alongside folks. Um, I mean um, mostly there's a, there's a bigger issue with healthcare in, in access to treatment in regard to cost and insurance companies and things like that that prohibit or make it very, very difficult for people to have access to treatment. And to me, that's the biggest issue, is that if there's a need, the resource should be available, and we can figure out the business side on the back end, um, which is one of the big you know kind of mantras I like to take is, let's figure out what the problem is, apply the resource, we'll figure out the business stuff on the back end. But in Laporte, I feel like that's what the issue is. You know, you have one basic you know provider here, and, and they can't do it all. Um, there's a lot of expectation around it, and, and I think that um, without everybody coming together as a united front, applying different modalities, we're going to fall short. Yeah, Revan, what do you have to add to that? Yeah, I'd just like to say that um, I think that the stigma around mental illness is, and maybe seeking help, is beginning to um, wane. You know, I've been working in the field since the mid-'90s, um, and so, you know, certainly there's, there's been a big shift in, in the difference of, of um, or in the, in the mindset of, of how people feel about coming to see a clinician or to, to schedule an appointment with a mental health center. And so I think we're, the need is increasing as people are feeling more comfortable accessing. Um, I, I do think, you know, as a clinician, one of the areas that I find most challenging is um, psychiatry. Um, you know, we really have an impoverishment of um, physicians who specialize in psychiatry, particularly for children, um, with, for adults also. But um, I know that, you know, I've served on boards of directors of agencies um, that are, you know, seeking competent, um, well-prepared psychiatrists, and it, it's been an ongoing problem for some time. So you... Yeah, go ahead. I mean, yeah, that's absolutely. a big. That's a, honestly a, a big portion of my job is recruiting psychiatrists, and it is difficult. You see the the programs, and they um, they're just not producing a lot of psychiatrists. in In the world of medicine, it's not as lucrative as some of the others. You have to go um, and participate in just as long of fellowship programs, and it's it's difficult um, because attracting a psychiatrist to a more rural um, location like Indiana is very difficult, um, and so a lot of times we will get um, physicians who maybe aren't their their philosophical approaches don't necessarily match with uh, communities, and so it's difficult to find the the quality competent ones that Robin was speaking of. Um, but it is it's extremely difficult to find providers one who have a passion for it, um, and then getting them to to invest in a community and stay long term. So then, is it causing a lot of Essentially, is it causing a lot of GPs to then act as if they are psychiatrists? Or it know? is, you know, and, and I worked in the traditional healthcare setting for for about ten years, and a lot of GPs, honestly, they're not comfortable. I mean, maybe some some um, general practitioner, by the way. Ge- yeah, I'm sorry, general like family providers. Um, you know, they may be for maybe mild cases of depression or anxiety, but something more sophisticated. A lot of times, they're making referrals out. Um, and it's difficult because there aren't a lot of providers that specialize in the care that some of these folks need. Great. 
Well, let's get to some of your questions, and uh, we'll go from there. So, we've got a lot of them. Um, all right. Um, here's a question. Uh, how do you explain to people, and anybody can answer this, okay? How do you explain to people that you have a mental illness? What is a good way to explain to people without making people think, right? Because there's this stigma that, oh, you're crazy, right? And that's not what it is, obviously. So what do you, how, how do you think is best to explain to people that you have a mental illness? Anybody? I'll go first. Okay, yeah, go ahead, Rob. Okay, Rob. <laughs> because I have the easy job. <laughs> um, when people come to, to see me or someone like me, you know, they obviously feel like there might be something going on. Um, and so... You know, it's certainly not one of the, the first things that will come out of my mouth, but after doing a comprehensive assessment and, um, you know, asking some questions to kind of drill down on what I think may be going on, um, I'll have a very um, compassionate yet candid conversation about, you know, it sounds to me like maybe you're struggling with depression or anxiety or fill in the blank. And then I will... Um, I will use our DSM, which is a Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the, the fifth um, DSM-5, um, and I'll open that up and read to them the actual diagnostic criteria so that it's not just, they under, have an understanding that it's not just my interpretation of what that diagnosis is, but what the actual symptoms are, what that really looks like, and we'll have a conversation about that. Um, but one thing I'd like to say um, after having said that is I think it's really important for all of us to understand that we never make an assumption that someone has a mental health problem before we've ruled out some a medical problem. Because many things can mimic mental health issues, and I think that it's incumbent upon us you know, from an ethical perspective to make sure that we're not jumping to that conclusion, um, which could really be harmful to people. So with that caveat, I will. Anecdotally, I'll, I'll speak to that real quick, Robin, is, you know, um, when I got diagnosed with Graves' disease, it's a thyroid disorder of your endocrine system. And um, I had never experienced anxiety in, a, in such a way, but it was, you know, it was, fortunately, my doctors recognized, hey, you're, this is probably going to be a byproduct of this uh, autoimmune disorder, so we're gonna we're gonna you know we're gonna treat this early, so you don't have to get too bad. But um, but I think that's a great correction to say it, it could be caused by something else or a byproduct of another illness right. as well. So. Right. You know what I have seen is as the access point typically for someone who thinks they may have a mental health disorder is honestly you have a, a very candid conversation with your family physician for most people and just say hey here's kind of what I have going on and they will ask a lot of similar questions to like what Robin was saying but I think the biggest thing I would caution is don't try to diagnose yourself don't try to apply a label to yourself um, let the professionals do that they have their handy statistical manual to help them kind of navigate through that. But the label's not important. Is It's making sure that whatever issue you're, you're dealing with at the moment, that they can help you work through that. And so that, you know, if you think you have a mental health disorder, it's being honest about what you're experiencing and sharing that with a professional that can help guide you along the way. I've got dear friends in this room that if they get on WebMD, <laughs> you think they're dying of gangrene, right? I won't, I won't name them, but they're in this room at a table I'm looking at right now. So 
Yeah, I'll, I'll piggyback off that, too. I, I think um, it's a great point. If uh, The question was a little broad on who you're talking to when you say, I have a mental illness. Um, I think, first of all, if you, if you need to get diagnosed, if you're feeling and go to your general practitioner is, is great advice. If you have the diagnosis, then I think it's like anything else. Uh, you're now diagnosed with a disease or an illness. So um, if you have diabetes, you don't go around yelling from the rooftops you have diabetes. But if you're sitting at a table and there's cake and someone's kind of like, do you want cake? I mean, you could say, well, no, you know, I have diabetes. diabetes. Yeah, I got that's right. So I, I, once again, it's taken the, you know, the stigma away to some extent, but I think it's also uh, knowing when it's appropriate to have those conversations you know, in, a, in a setting. And, and I think, I think and, and I'm going to ask you another question in a second, um, but I think you can never control how somebody responds to the, the truth that you give them, right? You just have to feel comfortable enough in your skin to confess that thing. And no one should be ashamed to say they have anxiety or depression or a doctor has diagnosed them with something. That doesn't mean that the world is kind to you in that confession or in that uh, recognition. Um, But you ought not to feel bad for it, as, like Ty said, somebody that has diabetes. Uh, Ty, this is a a question that I, I thought maybe you can... I know you've done a lot of research on this. Um, I'm a man that, was, uh, that has struggled intensely with depression and anxiety for as long as I can remember. In 1997, I was diagnosed as being a schizoaffected d- disorder. Is it possible I was born with this? So from my experience, once again, I'm not a, a, a yeah, clinician. Like yeah, um, Most people with schizoaffective disorder are diagnosed usually in their 20s. It's usually around that time, between 18 and 30. That's not a, you know, a broad yeah. statement. but And, and yes, it's genetic. So um, uh, if you've got someone in your family uh, tree that has it, you're more likely to, to develop that, that illness. Um, so it, it's like many things, I think. Uh, were you born with it? Uh, well, your genes were probably born with it, and you became symptomatic at a certain time. So, uh, yeah, I mean, if, if that's your diagnosis, then then yes, it wasn't. An, it was likely not an environmental thing that happened to you. It was likely uh, a genetic issue that uh, that's you're seeing later in life. As a clinician, Robin, is, is that is, is, what it? Nature, nurture, genetics. What what do you find then? Is most is it just depending on the person? Is it, you know, for many cases of, you know, diagnosis? Um. So um, very well said, by the way, Ty. Um, most, well, well, there's a little bit of both. Um, so with something like schizoaffective disorder, that is most likely nurture, is to, or nature, sorry, is to blame for that. So the, the genetic component is working... Um, um, Against against this man. Um, however, something like depression or anxiety, those things can certainly be induced by environmental stressors, um, and so you know, and uh, personality disorders, for example, are um, are not genetic. They are really almost wholly um, how someone is raised and how their personality develops as a result of their environment. So it depends on the diagnosis, really, you know, how we would look at that. Sure, absolutely. And then, like, you know, again, you have all the biological factors, too, if your endocrine system is messed up or Mm -hmm. something. You've got all these. It's a very complex world. Um, I do want to say, real quick, um, we are going to bring around desserts here in a few minutes, and uh, so help yourself uh, to enjoy a dessert 
the um, menu is on your table, so you'll be able to read what's in there and if you can or cannot have it based on if you do or do not have a food allergy. Diabetes. Here's a question. Um, again, open to the panel. How do I, as a mother who has a passion to care for children who have experienced trauma, how do I help parents or families or the kids themselves during my interactions with these kids who come from trauma? What uh, am I practically able to do to help kids in trauma? Yeah. In five seconds or less. Okay. You didn't read the question. Any any input to to how to help come alongside of kids? I think coming alongside is a beautiful way to put it. Um, Because I think that's what we really need to do more and more and more of, no matter what the issue might be. Um, in terms of, you know, so kids that are that have experienced trauma are going to be functioning at a heightened level of awareness. So they're going to be very keyed into what's happening in their environment. We call it being hypervigilant. So they're going to be very on, very aware, and very um, easily stressed by things that are unpredictable. So, you know, lower key activities, um, Um, like keeping a calm, safe, stable environment. One thing that's important for all children, but especially children who've been exposed to trauma, is understanding when transitions are going to happen. So um, like needing to put your shoes on to get out the door right now is probably not going to be the right approach for a child who's experienced trauma. But maybe letting them know in about 20 minutes. Right? (laughs) Right? So helping them to be able to anticipate what's going to happen in their environment and then delivering on that um, will help really soothe a lot of their distress. Great. Okay, I think that was yours. Sorry. Yeah, that one. They're punting that one to you. It's okay. Um, Shan, you might be able to speak to this one a little bit because we've had some conversations on this. I know. How does mental illness relate to drug the drug abuse epidemic? And uh, does mental illness lead to drug dependency, or does drug dependency lead to mental illness, or is there no direct correlation? What, what do you, next month we are talking about addictions. Yes. What are you seeing as the you know, connections between um, the two? Personally, in the work that, that I'm doing with the population that we're coming alongside, we do see a lot of co-occurring diagnoses with substance use disorder as well as a co-occurring mental health um, disorder, but not necessarily. It's not an always case that, you know, just because you have a mental health disorder does not necessarily mean you will develop um, a substance use disorder and and vice versa as well. But we do see a lot of folks with substance use disorder have that co-occurring diagnosis. Um, And and so you do see see quite a bit of that, um, which is why you typically see community mental health centers who are staffed with a team of psychiatrists in in addition to addiction medicine physicians that come alongside clinicians to handle the counseling portion, the psychiatry, as well as addiction medicine if you need it. So you're seeing community mental health centers diversify a little bit. Um, The interesting thing is that the psychiatrists that at least I've been exposed to, um, 
addiction medicine is just a small piece of, of what they're learning in their training as well. And so finding physicians that have specialized in addiction medicine, um, they just started a new class of board certification for addiction medicine because it's become so prevalent in, in the communities that we, we've had to provide additional training for our physicians to, to be able to adequately treat. Um, and so, you know, we are seeing a, a whole care team is how, how we approach it in, in, in my daily work. Um, but you are seeing folks that, that do have both, but it isn't necessarily a one and, and, you know, one size fits all. If you have one, you'll have the other. That, uh, and Jim, we had that conversation not too long ago, if you remember. Yep. And it, 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 it really wrecked with, like, just my, my paradigm on some things there in that we are educating care providers yeah. right now on how to deal with the issues that people are living with today. Yeah. And so we're asking, why is the drug problems not solved yet? And I know we're getting into next, prob- next month, but it yeah. does correlate a little bit when right now we're, 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 we're training the army in a sense, right? I mean, to get... We're, we're behind the eight ball. We, we are. And I think admitting that is, is important because we need to admit that maybe what we did in the past doesn't always work. You know, I think, Ty, you kind of referenced that, you know, um, advances in medication, advances in treatment models, it advance, you know, in, in medicine in general um, lends well. But to acknowledge the fact that we're behind the eight ball and kind of the old tricks aren't working anymore to provide the relief that people need. And so, you know, we are training people, you know, as we're learning, um, but it's difficult because trying to catch up the ground to have enough resources available to treat people is what we're running into. There's just not enough. Uh, Robin, this is a question for you. What is a trigger? Oh. So let me think of a good example. So a trigger is something that... Whether so, we can think about it in a couple different ways. Um, someone that has experienced trauma, you've heard you've heard about PTSD, I'm sure. Um, so, someone that has trauma, maybe let's say from a combat experience. Um, I remember going to, to graduate school. Brief brief um, waylay here. I, I went to graduate school with a, a man who had served as a medic in Vietnam, and um, we went to grad school downtown Chicago. And whenever, like, we'd be walking to class or out for coffee after class, if there would be a helicopter that flew overhead, um, he would have uh, a reaction to that. That would be distressing to him. So for him, that was a a trigger. Um, So I think that's an easy way to understand in terms of trauma. But we, even if we don't have... Um, a diagnosed mental illness, all of us are triggered by different things in our in our lives. There may be that aggravating behavior that your spouse or your child engages in that triggers an emotional response. Um, so with mental illness, it just has maybe a little bit more profound impact on someone in the moment. So then as a clinician, I'd love to get your your input on this. As somebody that's you know, let's say we're raising children or we're teachers or, you know, um, and we've identified triggers with a child or with someone that's, is it, is the best help to help live with the triggers or to help live getting around the triggers to a sense, like to mitigate the triggers, get a life where there is no triggers or where there are no triggers, or is it to how to survive a trigger once you live, once you uh, see it or Well, I think that would depend on what the trigger is. If the trigger is mom or dad raging at the child, we would want to try to eliminate that trigger. 
right? Yeah, writing that down. But if it was... <laughs> um, However, I think it's important to really help people develop coping skills for managing their responses to triggers because, you know, we live in a world that it's hard to predict or to buffer um, children or adults from things that might upset them. And so to um, a better approach might be to equip a child or young person or older person with some skills to manage their response would probably be more insulating for them mm-hmm. um, just going through life. That, that, that idea of coping is one of the things, again, that the elementary schools right now are, are trying to deal with because if we don't help our children learn how to cope now with anxiety and stress, mm-hmm. it only gets exasperated and grows exponentially by high school. And then, True. you know, um, so... Which is just an interesting point of education, right? That actually educating on triggers and learning how to cope with triggers and, and is uh, an important part of, of uh, human flourishing, you know? And so, Absolutely. Um, so uh, another question. Um, how can I speak to my young children about the mental illness of a family member? Uh, yeah, go ahead. Ty, you got any uh, opinions? Or? I don't want to dominate. <laughs> I guess I'll explain. No, uh, well, I, I think first of all, uh, we go back to the idea of it being like any other disease. Um, I, I think you are just frank and open and honest, and you explain whatever the diagnosis is of the family member and what those symptoms can be, and that that doesn't mean that this person is always going to experience those symptoms, but uh, they have a history of it. Um, you know, they're still part of our family. They love us. You may never experience this loved one in our family having these symptoms, but just to let you know, it's there. Um, and uh, our family has been there to, to help them, and uh, this person's there as part of our family to help us when we need help. So, I mean, just open, honest dialogue. I don't think um, kids are pretty resilient, and uh, they tend to listen well and adapt well. So uh, just, just honesty, I think, is, the, is an, an, in a loving way, of course. Yeah, please sure. do. Uh, just to add one thing, I think that it's important to, to remember when we're talking with children to to speak with them in a developmentally appropriate way. So, at whatever you know level they, wherever they are, um, and to to think about these conversations with our children as not being. Um, a destination, like we can check that off the list. We've had that conversation, but a process. Because as they mature and develop a greater understanding of themselves and others in the world, I think it's important to revisit many topics. Um, but, but a topic of a family member struggling with mental health issues is something that will be an ongoing conversation that unfolds as they understand more. Great, great. Uh, Shannon, this is a question for you. This question says, I struggle with anxiety, but my insurance won't pay for counseling. I don't qualify for government assistance, and I can't afford it out of pocket right now. How can I get access to a counselor or treatment? Talk to the community mental health center uh, um, about a sliding scale fee. About Do we chari- have one in, about charity in care? What Absolutely. Is it? Swanson Center is okay. your community mental health center in LaPorte County. So ask the question. Ask to meet with a financial counselor. They all have them. Um, again, sliding scale fee, they may call it something different, but charity care, sliding scale fee, um, discounts basically to access to treatment. A community mental health center should not be turning you away based on your inability to pay. So, 
Yeah, please do. Yeah. Yeah. I have another resource. Um, Samaritan Center in uh, Michigan City in Laporte. I'm, I don't know if they have another location, but they have like um, a scholarship fund. Uh, or I'm not sure if that's exactly what they call it, but essentially they have a fund and they do offer sliding fee scale um, or even free service um, depending on your income or your need or your individual circumstance. Um, I also want to add that, um, you know, I'm in private practice part-time and, you know, being in private practice, I have the luxury of being able to see someone at a discounted or significantly discounted rate, or even pro bono. Um, and so don't be afraid to ask someone in private practice if they're able to offer you a discount. I know many many of us do that and are happy to do that and feel like, um, honestly, that's part of, um, part of our obligation to our community. Yeah, I, I know a decent amount of therapists, counselors, and and um, all of them got into it for a deeper sense of calling. You know, that like it, it is a job, but it's also... Um, so how do you approach that, though, Shannon, from a healthcare provider perspective? Do you just call and set up an appointment, and then once you set up an appointment, then you can work on payment, or do you call first and say... I would, I, I would recommend setting up a time with a financial counselor ahead of time, okay. um, because you would hate to, to get through an appointment and or, you know, arrive thinking you're going to have access to a counselor to, to discuss whatever the issue is and then, you know, not be able to do that. So I would recommend doing that in advance. Do your due diligence. Make the phone call. Um, but, you know, don't don't be afraid to ask. Um, that's the biggest thing. Um, a lot of organizations aren't going to offer that right up front um, because there is still, you know, there is still a, a cost to operating a business. So they're not, they may not offer right up front, but certainly do not be afraid to ask the question. Um, every community mental health center I know of across the state, and I know there are many, many of them, um, have financial counselors. They have people that help you navigate that process. Um, for those that maybe aren't um, enrolled with a governmental payer but may be eligible and just don't know how to navigate the process, they have navigators to help you with those things. Um, and so there are resources available to, to help get access to treatment, even if you don't have the resources to pay. Thanks. We, we have a website, discussionoverdinner.com. And each, each episode of this, each time we do this conversation, uh, we put the links of different um, organizations that we talk about and things like that. We'll put Samaritan's uh, uh, Counseling, uh, Samaritan Counseling and uh, Swanson Center yes, on there as definitely. well. And if you guys have any other links or... Uh, you can certainly give that sure. to us as well. Sure. One other long shot. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. It might not apply to this specific question, but the VA is also, if there's service in the in the family, the VA is a, is a resource, so it might not apply, but just and, and just throwing that out there too as a possible resource. Do you think, again, this is for anyone, um, this is a question, uh, do you think the rise in mental health has to do with the foods we eat, chemicals, and preservatives? Do you think there's any connection with the foods we eat and uh, mental illness? It's a, uh, Ty Miller, go ahead. Yeah, from all my clinical experience, yeah, I'll answer that one. I'm, I, I have no authority to answer that question, so I'm not going to. <laughs> You're going to lose so many pol- political debates well. on that one. You're welcome. It's okay to say no. I... I I want to say I don't know because I think it's important to give research-based information. And um, I don't – I'm not privy to – You've not seen any data that suggests – Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And that doesn't mean, again, I mean, I, I do think you can say uh, maybe you feel better or worse based on the foods you eat, yeah. but that doesn't mean that uh, schizoaffective disorder is right. impacted by chemicals. Or right. I, I will say, this isn't, rela- this, isn't, this isn't related to food, but there is some data coming out that all of the time we're spending on screens uh, is, is increasing our anxiety. It's affecting our sleep, and when we don't get the right amount of sleep, our dopamine and serotonin get messed up, and that's what creates yeah. mental disorders. So while I wouldn't go down the rabbit trail of food just because I don't know, I do know there's a lot of data that's stating, especially for young developing minds, that um, a lot of screen time, always being in front of screens, can contribute to some some anxiety and, and other disorders, I believe. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, and again, that's a that's a that's a good good feedback there. In that too, sometimes we have to look at the rhythms of our lives and how we're living. Um, are we doing enough self care? Are we doing enough time off? We we typically, again, uh, we try to accomplish and build and uh, do more. And sometimes that's the very thing that's the hurdle in the way of feeling well. So. Um, is there treatment for an elderly person who is a hoarder or pack rat of things, and what kind of actions should be taken? Well, uh, or or is that a symptom? Is sometimes hoarding a symptom? Or what, what? there there is an actual diagnosis of hoarding disorder. Um, but I wouldn't recommend diagnosing a family member. Um, I do it with all my family, by the way. I really think that intervening with someone that you know or love, that you are concerned, that may have an issue with hoarding, um, I think that it would probably, the first step might be um, getting them involved with some supportive services where that can, where that issue can be evaluated um, objectively. It's very difficult for us to be objective about the people that we know well and love well. And so I think that it might be important to connect that person with a counselor who could help kind of sort that out. And and they would then help you um, or help that individual devise a a, a strategy or a plan as they're they're comfortable. Because again, um, you know, we've talked about coming alongside. Um, We don't want to drag someone through an intervention that's generally not a recipe for success. And so we have to find a way to, um, you know, get their investment in their own health and recovery. Um, we've got some teachers in the room. Um, they would like to know, or a few of them anyway, I've seen some text here, with kids that are young, do you have any recommendations for maybe some exercises or some things they can do in the classroom because everyone ought to, right? I mean, uh, you know, self-reflection, these kind of things. Is there anything that you would recommend, Robin, um, as a clinician that they can maybe do that can help some of their kids? I do. I have one great idea that I, I tell my college students, I wish someone taught me this whole idea when I was in elementary school. And I certainly teach my own children you know, um, there's this approach to helping people that, that is pretty common. It's called cognitive behavioral therapy. And the idea is, you know, what we think really impacts the way we feel. And the way we feel impacts the way we show up. We oftentimes want to work on managing the way we feel. When the trouble really gets started with what we're thinking, you know. And so for children to understand, that's a powerful 
tool to really think about, you know, when you're feeling something strong, what thoughts are are feeding those feelings? Um, Because that's where the management needs to happen. We so want to get, you know, manage kids' behavior or manage their emotions and teach them to do that when really such a pivotal, such a critical piece that we miss in that whole process is how we think about things. That's, that's great. Um, Ty, a question for you. Uh, you had mentioned um, the, the mother that's underneath that, right, that you know of, that you connect with, that there's... there's there's her illness, but then there's her as well, and you separate the two sometimes. If your mom was here right now, um, and she, you know, um, in clear mind could say, these are the things you don't understand, or these are the things I would like for people to know about someone going through hers, what do you think she would say? Yeah, good question. Uh, so I, I think a few things. Um, she would She would say that, there is, when she is healthy, um, she is appreciative of family that is supportive of her, uh, and she understands that when she's not healthy, she doesn't know that she's not healthy. And so um, when, when she's in a clear state of mind, she's loving and wants help from anyone that's willing to give it to her. Uh, I think she is very thankful that there are uh, places where she's been able to get help over her entire life. And I think that she would uh, point to the church as being uh, dramatically impactful in her life. Um, when I've had to go and, and talk to uh, clinicians on her behalf, and you've got to fill out the survey of, you know, what's your history like? I mean, she's never had any addictions to drugs. She's never had addictions to alcohol. She's never smoked. It's very rare for someone with her severe mental disability to um, to be able to check all those. The, the clinicians usually are like, you sure? <laughs> um, but uh, I think a stable environment, uh, I think, to your point earlier, Nate, um, having Wesley's vision of having a, a church in every county or township um, uh, over my life, uh, pastors and, and church friends and family uh, have been just critical to to her getting the care that she needs, and um, I think the first thing she would say is she's she's so thankful that uh, she's had that community of, of people around her to to help her when she can't help herself, to accept her for who she is, not who she ought to be, or you know who they perceive to be, uh, what she needs to do. Then I mean, is there part of that? Yeah, and, and once again, it comes back to people that know her well. And I think if you have a loved one you know well, you know what I would call is their baseline, right? So you know who they are underneath. And so um, it's it's tricky. Uh, you don't want to um, uh, force someone into a situation uh, that uh, perhaps they don't want to, to be in. But I've advocated, I've stood before judges to get her committed, and I've stood before judges to get her out of, uh, you know, mental uh, health centers and and state hospitals. So uh, once again, I think it just comes down to knowing the loved one, um, understanding them, and uh, when they can't advocate for themselves, you've got a responsibility too. And um, she would say, I've been a pretty good son to be able to do that for her. Uh, and I know she does say that. Um, I, I guess this is for anybody up here, but Ty, maybe you specifically too, maybe Robin, you'll have some input. I, I don't know. There, there is, 
you had mentioned that um, sometimes if she's not in a good place, she's not willing to admit it, right? Or she's not, she doesn't have the wherewithal to, to, to cognitively or emotionally see that she's not in a good place. However, as someone that loves her, that is advocating for her, you have to deal with that. Yet, I've also heard the pushback too, which I think is very critical. You don't want to diagnose your family members, or you certainly don't want to be that person that if somebody's having a bad day or a bad moment, you blame their illness for it, right? How do you live within the tension of that? Or have you learned anything to, to live there? So the symptoms are pretty dramatic when, uh, at least from my experience, on the, let's talk about the manic depressive side. She's, she's double diagnoses. So um, when she's in a manic stage, uh, it's risky behavior. It's um, buying a lot of stuff that she can't afford. Um, it's just doing things that uh, she would, I mean, getting in wrecks and fender benders, you know, it's just, uh, there's, there's danger there. And it's all obvious that those are, they're dangerous things. And then the peak comes with the depression, which is then there's self-harm involved and and laying in bed all day and and not wanting to talk. So, um, at least in my experience, the, the symptoms are dramatic enough that I know when it's time to, to find ways to help her. So getting her into a GP, if she, if she doesn't want to trust me in that moment, getting her in to talk to a pastor uh, or a family member, uh, getting creative ways to get her the help that she needs, um, which always involves getting in front of the right doctor to get uh, the right treatment. So, um, so yeah. you, you got to go here. You just have to figure out how you're going to get her there. Without yeah, yeah the, end, the end goal is treatment. And once again, I, we live in a day where most mental illnesses can be treated pretty effectively uh, with, with a number of therapies. So it's just a matter of getting the person that needs the help in the right place to get the help they need. Did you ever take it personal? Like if your mom was in a bad place and, you, you know, did you, did you struggle as a son ever in those moments? Because I'm, I'm not going to lie, I did. I, I did because I felt I was doing something wrong. Um, and how did you deal with that? Uh... Yeah, so I don't. I think I always kept it along at arm's distance, understanding it was a disease. Uh, I will say that uh, she was a teacher at the middle school that I went to. Um, she's a middle school teacher, and in middle school, as you can imagine, that's a pretty uh, <laughs> dramatic time growing up. Um, and so uh, that was that was tough uh, dealing with my peers, um, knowing you know what what my mom was going through, and, and she did some embarrassing things. So there was. There was that that I had to deal with, but I never, I guess I never have held it against her, and I don't, I don't you know You love why. your mom, right? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, sure. I do love her. But no, I mean, <laughs> but, <laughs> I mean but it's, it's I, hard, though. As, as a child of someone, there's this frustration. There's this, this there, there can be that, but you, you do. You just, you love your mom, and I know you do, especially. Yeah. But. I mean, I got angry at her at times. Like, why won't you get help? But it was because she was sick. Once again, it comes down to that. Uh, to my point earlier, it's one of the rare illnesses that people, when they are sick, they don't want to admit that they're sick or get help so um shannon and robin i'd love to get your how let's say uh someone here wants to find a counselor or a therapist or you know how do you find the right one because that doesn't just because there's one you go to doesn't necessarily always mean it's the right one right for you or whatever any recommendations there 
Well, I mean, I, I certainly would recommend not just going to somebody because that's the only option. You need to be able to establish a trusting relationship with whomever that person is. And certainly, I'm, I'm sure Robin can elaborate more, but it, it is important that it's somebody that you trust, that you feel very comfortable with, because you're, you're sharing pretty vulnerable information. And if, if you're going to be able to get help, you're going to have to be pretty candid and, and vulnerable. And so I think it's important that it's it's somebody that you, you have that trusting relationship with. I would also ask ask somebody who knows. Ask your pastor. Ask, you know, ask a friend, ask, um, you know, reach out to Robin or, you know, another clinician that you know, um, and ask for a referral of of someone to see. Yeah, I agree. I think word of mouth is really powerful. Um, um, Also, another thing before I tell you the main thing is, um, you know, if you have health insurance, uh, you can check online with your insurance policy to find out who's in network. So you can get a list of, of people that would be covered by your insurance. Um, and I oftentimes, if I have friends or students or, you know, um, ask me who, who might be good, I'll say, why don't you send me a list of who's approved on your insurance and I'll tell you what I know or who I know of that has a good reputation or I know of their work personally. Um, so that's another little tool. Um, but something I tell every client the first time I ever meet with them, and I mean this truly, is you know just because somebody recommended you to come see me um, doesn't mean that you're going to like me or feel comfortable with me or feel confident in my ability to help you. And so if at any time, whether that's in this first appointment or in our next appointment or the one after that, you really don't feel comfortable or confident in my ability to help you, I promise I can act like an adult and help you find somebody who may be better suited for you. Um, and, and I do think that Shannon hit the nail on the head with, you really do have to feel comfortable. And that first appointment is usually a pretty nervous time for people um, because it takes, it takes a lot of bravery to make that phone call and show up for that first appointment. It's very vulnerable. And so, you know, it may be in that second appointment that you really feel like you get a sense of who that person is. But don't stick with someone you're not comfortable with. Um, it's not worth your time or your money um, or your effort, um, but persist on, on finding someone else. Um, we got just a little more time here, and a lot of questions still to ask. But this is this one of the po- part. One of the reasons we're doing these kinds of conversations is um, there are a lot of issues happening at the federal or state level, and we ought to be aware of those. But our impact can be felt most on a local level. And so we wanted to have these conversations on how they impact our local level. And so this question um, is for uh, uh, you, Shannon, is our local hospital has shown they are not interested in treating mental health issues, presumably because it's not profitable. How do you get them to allocate resources toward mental health because of the great need? How, How does that happen? That's a pretty difficult question. Um, uh, honestly, just just having the kind of conversations, um, making sure local hospital leadership understands what's actually happening. You know, engaging them in do conversations. Do people hear? I mean, do I mean? Can people hear? Contact the hospital absolutely. and say it's absolutely. important for us in Laporte to see mental health care yes, happening. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Have those conversations. Um, petition even, you know, the, the local leadership um, and, and have that candid conversation. Um, 
and I, I don't want to say that that the local hospital has taken a disinterest in mental health. I think that they've realized um, that in in a, in a setting like Laporte, it is a small community, um, and that you have to be able to pick your book of business um, because they also have to be able to keep the lights on. Um, but I think that the local hospital could do a better job of advocating for a good community partner to come alongside that they give an option to people in Laporte. Um, and I think that's something that they could improve upon. Um, because again, a single solution for a community this size, there's not enough resources to go around. And so I would encourage you reach out to the local hospitals, you know, the leadership teams, um, reach out to the physicians who also advocate and have a heavy role in what services are offered. Because it, it isn't just, just that, it's the recruitment piece we talked about too. Trying to keep psychiatrists in this area is tremendously difficult. Um, so that's the other thing is it's great if the hospital is willing to offer the service, but if you don't have the providers to provide the care, you know, your your hands are tied there as well. So. Yeah, please sure. do. I, I don't want there to be any misconception, that, however, that um, if someone that you know is in a crisis, like is it at risk of harming themselves or someone else, you still are able to go to the Laporte Hospital emergency room um, where you will be evaluated or your loved one will be evaluated and they will make arrangements to have you or your loved one transported to a facility where they can have treatment. So it's important to know that in, a, in an emergency that is, that is an option. Those transfer agreements are in place at any hospital facility that has an emergency department. So it's not just even in Laporte. If you, you know, those watching could be in Stark County where there's a small hospital there too, or, you know, even in Michigan City, if, if the beds aren't available even in their units, because that's the other thing is while we may not have our own inpatient unit facility here, those that do find that their beds are often full. Um, and so again, like Robin said, absolutely, there is care available and they will you know, work tirelessly to find a resource available for you in a crisis so situation. So if I'm hearing you right, get your letter writing campaign going and don't be afraid to contact people in local, uh, in the hospital locally, yes. on the board or whatever. It if is, it's an important issue to you. Absolutely. It is not going to hurt to have the conversation and to have the conversation often. Yeah. All right. Uh, this is a question hot off the press, specifically to you, Shannon. Is Bowen Center thinking about coming to Laporte County? That was that was not my question. That was a question. Um, I've asked her, by the way. So he, he, he already knows the answer. So I thought maybe it was his question. Um, absolutely, um, being a part of the Bowen Center has been um, has been a really good experience, but it also. Um, has been kind of heartbreaking because I know the services that we provide as an organization, and I want that here. I want that for our students and our schools. I want that for, you know, people in the community, and I want that that for for everyone to have access to treatment like that. Um, and so, yes, um, we we have two members of, of Bowen's executive team live in the port, um, and when our leadership team got together and realized that so many, you know, two of us of our leadership team are commuting down to something they believe in. How could we not try to bring it back to our own home community? And so, yes, we are, we are looking at coming into Laporte. Um, what that looks like right now, to be completely honest, I don't know. Um, but um, I, I will work tirelessly to make sure that we have some sort of solution coming to Laporte. It is that and no no timelines no dates is that a, do you think a, a fairly short term thing I mean like you're thinking 
before you and I retire? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. All right. I mean, I'm, it, it's a conversation we're having daily. Um, you know, how, how Bowen has expanded is typically they start with mobile solutions, community-based solutions, meaning you have um, community-based case managers, social worker type individuals who have some training in social work coming alongside typically in school settings or for adults um, working alongside of folks in the community and in their homes with skills training and, and things like that. Um, Bowen went into Elkhart and St. Joe counties kind of that way. Um, without starting the bricks and mortar operations. Typically, those are extremely expensive um, operations to start. And when those communities already have community mental health centers in place, those state dollars are already going to those organizations. Um, The thing I love most about Bowen is when there's a need being unmet, we're willing to go in. And there's a need being unmet in, in the port. And so we feel a duty and an obligation to respond. And to kind of contextualize that, I'm planning on retiring at the end of the year. So <laughs> you heard it here. Bowen Center will open up by the end of the year in Laporte. Spread it on the Facebooks. Pretty um, <laughs> There's a question here. Where is Bowen Center? So our corporate office is located in Warsaw. Um, our largest outpatient office is in Allen County in Fort Wayne. Um, we are, like I said, in 15 counties across the state. The closest one here, obviously, is St. Joe County, um, but our closest bricks and mortar is in Marshall County in Plymouth. Um, and so we go countywide, um, working with with the other community mental health centers in in each of those. Okay, this is a this is an interesting question. This is a little bit different than than some of the other ones we've been given, uh, Robin. And I, I'd love to get your your input on this um, contentious topic here. Okay. Are spankings useful in <laughs> child development or are they still um or wait 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 I, I missed that question. Are spankings unuseful in child development or are they still appropriate when necessary? This is a contentious topic, so I'm just going to give my yep. opinion. Um I don't really, I'm not a fan of spanking. I, um, I think that most oftentimes when spankings happen, they happen when parents are angry. And I think that the, the lesson, the message is um, that we hit when we're angry. And so um, as, a, as a basic across the board answer, I'm, I'm going to say I'm not a fan. I, I understand, however, there are people that would say I spank my children when I'm calmed down and they, and they know that I'm calm and this is the punishment. Um, I think we, as human beings, have the capacity to be really creative and um, I, think we could, I think we could find other ways to, to discipline our children. I think it's really important to, to differentiate um, discipline and is just because you don't spank doesn't mean discipline doesn't happen. Oh, right, right, right. right. Um, and I'm also, I also want to say, you know, if, if my child were reaching for a hot burner on the stove, I might swat their hand away. Or if they're getting ready to run out into traffic between cars, I'm going to yank them back, you know. But, but in terms of spanking as a, as a discipline strategy, I think we have many other options that we um, can promote and talk about. Yeah, and, and I like to use as an example, I was spanked. My children weren't. My kids are way better than me. So that's, a, that's, a, that's all the proof texting I need uh, of that topic. 
Um, so, um, here's a question uh, from someone that has depression. They have friends that have depression. They've got family members that have depression. How do they help someone in, um, that's going through their own mental health crisis without being brought down in the crisis as well? Any input? Um, I would say, I think for anyone struggling with depression, and I think for human beings across the board, um, I think that we really have to prioritize self-care and having boundaries. And so if something's becoming overwhelming or having a negative impact on you and your efforts to help people, I think it's important that you um, take care of yourself. I know, in, you know, a, as a clinician, there are times where I'm overwhelmed by the things that I hear and the, um, you know, the distress and the loss and the trauma that people deal with. And, um, you know, sometimes I can go home with a pretty heavy heart and a pretty heavy mind. And, um, you know, the number one best thing I can do for myself is to, like, acknowledge that and to do something very intentionally that's going to um, help restore, you know, my health. Um, what, this is a heavy topic, right? I mean, it's just, it is. And it seems overwhelming. Um, as the statistics, again, statistics are, they can be, cherry-picked we can we can talk about those but as a community member as someone that cares about Laporte and Laporte's mental and emotional well-being what is something practical like like legitimate that we should be doing to help this issue in Laporte County anybody have an opinion Ty you got something I think just having conversations with your friends and family that mental illness is not a st- should not be stigmatized. Um, there, it, I mean, we're talking about it's less than it was, but it still kind of is. So um, it's an easy thing to do is to, uh, I mean, I've had family members that I still think, think my mom's just weird, <laughs> you know, and um, you, so just having conversations with your friends and family to make it less feeling like it's something that you need to hide because the last thing we want people that are depressed to do is to try and hide it because they're ashamed of it. There's no reason to be ashamed of it. It's an illness and they need help. So um, that's an easy one. Just talk to people about it like it's a normal illness that we all deal with. You know, I think I would echo, you know, Ty's comments there. Coming alongside people and loving them well, regardless of what they're going through, is a a big part of it. and, and owning it, because I think if, you know, like this statistic you quoted earlier, about 20% of those adults living in Indiana have struggled with a mental illness, I, I do firmly believe those numbers are understated. And being vulnerable, if somebody's willing to share with you, you know, maybe helping identify, validate what they're going through is is, is a huge portion of, of, you know, this doesn't, you know, make you insert label crazy, weird, or, you know, whatever um, societal word wants to be placed on it. I, I think just being loving, honestly, and, and having the conversation, advocating, um, for those that aren't able to advocate for themselves is really important. Um, and, and just getting aware, awareness is a huge motivator for people and a huge, um, positive momentum that can move things forward. Things like this, you know, like, like Ty was saying, a discussion, cause this isn't an easy topic to talk about. Um, you know, not that long ago, people wouldn't talk about mental health. Everybody had the crazy uncle Larry or whomever that, you know, he just was quirky or weird that nobody wanted to talk about. And, and it doesn't need to 
be that way. Um, because again, it is an illness that there is treatment. And that's, that's what gives people hope is there is treatment for the vast majority of the things that people are struggling with. There are options to improve your situation. And that's, what's really exciting. And that's why we should talk about it because guess what? It doesn't have to stay exactly the way it is. It can improve and get better. I'll add one little thing. Um, I think that um, in terms of furthering the destigmatization of mental illness, I think language is important. And um, in my house, I'm trying to outlaw the use of crazy and the use of insane because I think that probably makes maybe make someone who's struggling with a mental illness feel bad about themselves. And, uh, you know, we wouldn't call someone with diabetes a sicko. Right. And so I think that um, maybe just changing our everyday language to be more respectful might open the door for someone to um, reach out to us. The Department of Mental Health um, and Addictions is currently going through a big campaign right now. They're just calling it the humanizing campaign. And it's all focused around language. Exactly right. And and. You know, it's it's language that we just kind of inherited and, and got used to, and you don't realize that perhaps for somebody who is, is struggling with that issue that it's offensive. There's a lot of language around those that struggle with addiction that we really could do a better job at being more sensitive to. Um, and so that that campaign is, is posted all over their website. If, you, um, if, if that strikes a chord with you and resonates about wanting to kind of look at the language, I would encourage you to check out that website. That might be one to include the again? Department of Mental Health and Addiction. Dot com? DMHA. Okay, com. thank you. Yeah. Um, Shannon, real quick, though, I, w- I want to sure. are there, um, and maybe Robin, too, because you're in, you're in social work or you're in school, where does the dialogue occur about what the community really needs in terms of mental health services in Laporte? Where are the conversations happening right now? I know that they're happening in the schools, um, you know, uh, because I serve on the school board too, and I hear about some of the things that teachers are struggling with um, and feeling ill-equipped to handle um, because, you know, a lot of that responsibility falls on the teachers, um, and they encounter some very difficult things. I think oftentimes they probably go home with heavy hearts and heavy minds as well, um, encountering um, some of the things they hear from their students. So I know those conversations are happening in schools. Um, those school counselors um, and those principals have, have a big task ahead of them. And so that's one place that it, it should be happening, um, asking for, for help from other community resources and understanding that they don't have to be doing it alone. Um, reaching out to the Community Mental Health Center, Swanson Center, and saying, you know, we need help. We need additional resources. What are you doing to grow and improve access for our community is a big one. Um, and don't be afraid to ask them, what's your plan? What's your plan to address the issue? They should have an answer for you. Um, and it's it's not too bold to ask that question. So if this is a topic of justice for some people, right? Having yeah, the, absolutely. That's that's how that's their their next step mm-hmm. is to contact these people. And I, figure I out think how it to... is completely appropriate. And I've had people call me at work and say, "Okay, you know, we only have a psychiatrist one day a week for our entire county. What are you personally doing to improve access to treatment for our community?" And I share with them my strategic plan, and here's what I'm doing for recruiting. And I'm very honest with them um, because I think they need to know, you know. And then a lot of times their their response is, "What can we do to help?" You know. And it's 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 asking those questions and, and engaging folks in the conversation. Great. Well, we'll end with these que- these two questions for each of you. Um, and uh, Ty, we can start with you, and then we'll come this way. Um, what do you think the church can do to help? And what brings you hope? 
So I think I highlighted this earlier, but uh, the church was instrumental in um, in my life, uh, just being there uh, when sometimes uh, the person that I loved would not listen to me. Um, so I think as as a church, um, once again, being aware if there are people in your body or your community that might be showing symptoms or, or have issues, um, being open to those conversations and open to talking with not only them but their loved ones. And um, gosh, what gives me hope, uh, you know, I think we have progressed so far, and I've said this a number of times, but I am I'm amazed at, I remember when I was 12, so five years ago, just kidding. Um, but when I, when I was in middle school, uh, going in front of a psychiatrist, and he was like, well, we've got these three drugs to try. And now it's like, we've got these 50 drugs, to, you know, to, to choose from. So, and it's, it's more than just, you know, uh, drug treatment. There, there's plenty of other treatments um, available. Uh, and I think we've learned as a society, uh, our, our psychologists and psychiatrists and clinicians have learned different um, treatments to use, just, you know, discussing the right questions to ask. Um, I mean, we're progressing. And so uh, I think for most people, no matter their mental illness, uh, whether it's anxiety or depression or something more serious uh, that, that needs, you know, serious treatment, um, I, I think we're getting better uh, for treatment for all, all across the board. Shannon, um, how can the church help and what brings you hope? Um, so the church can help by, by doing things like this, by, by loving those well. Again, accepting people where they are um, and understanding that, you know, just because somebody has the, the mental illness or, or disorder or they're struggling with something at the moment, um, that's the time to really come alongside of them and, and not isolate out. And sometimes you may not have the right words and you may not know what to do, but just being there alongside of them is enough um, to give them the hope they need or the motivation they need to, to reach out or even just to get through one more day or one more hour or one more minute. Um, and what gives me hope is, is seeing the lives impacted. Um, to see um, someone who felt like they were beyond repair or lacked value realize that they are valuable and that they're worthy of love. That's what gives me hope. Robin, what can the church do to help, um, to be a, a source of help and not hurt in a community? And what brings you hope? Well, I think, um, again, discussions like this certainly are a great, great effort, and I applaud you for doing that. Um, I think as a church body, you know, as individual members of a church, I think that it's important that if you see someone suffering that you ask them if they're struggling. Because I, I think that we're oftentimes afraid to initiate that kind of conversation, that it might get us in over our heads or it might give someone the idea that maybe they have a problem when, you know, what a lifeline you throw when you just simply ask the question. So I think that's really important. And what gives me hope is, um, you know, boy, the field of mental health is just, you know, continuing to develop new treatment interventions. You know, it's not been very long ago that it was a pretty stagnant field with a very few interventions at our hands. And, um, there are lots of new things happening. One really new and exciting thing um, is that there are now um, blood tests with a finger prick that are available for people with depression that will help hone in on what kind of antidepressants would be most 
effective for that individual. And I think that is tremendous because until this new technology has come along, it's been sort of like hunt and peck for f- trial and error. And, and that's a real, that's um, uh, just such a frustrating experience for someone who's struggling to try a pill for 30 days and then have to take time to come off that pill before they try another pill when we can kind of ne- hone in on that a little bit better. So I just see more and more things like that um, coming in the future. Thank you. I'll end with this uh, anecdote. Um, as anybody that comes here knows, uh, uh, I was very close to uh, my grandfather's, uh, my grandpa Peterson, who's my mom's dad, and my grandpa Laux, who many of you guys knew, uh, who was my dad's dad. And um, and uh, my grandpa Laux was kind of, actually both of them, but they were kind of like my blue-collar Buddhas. Um, and they got to teach me lots about life and their struggles, and I learned so much from watching them. And one of the greatest things my grandpa Laux uh, gave to me was um, one day we were sitting, uh, just the two of us, and we were talking about um, my frustrations with getting some stuff done, work, all these kind of things. And uh, my grandfather had this funny story or anecdote, which... Uh, was funny, but it, it it was I think somewhat true to him as well. When people would say, you know, Bill, uh, Noah didn't build the ark in one day, and or the ark didn't get built in one day, and he says, yeah, because I wasn't on the job. Um, and and as funny as that is, there's part of him and part of me that resonates with that. And and he said, Nate, you're going to come to a point where it'll never be enough. You'll never accomplish enough in a day. You'll never feel good enough. You'll never feel like you're, you, you, you're worthy enough. You're never. And he said, and I, I spent a lot of my life battling that, being depressed about that, being anxious about it. And he said, don't do what I do. Get help. He said, we're, as my grandfather would said, uh, we're just not right in the head, bud. Um, and he said, don't get help. Or don't 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 uh, live with that your rest of your life. Get help, and um, that was motivation for me. And uh, as you guys all know here, I'm, I've got anxiety. I'm, I take a pill every day for my anxiety. Uh, some days are good days. Some days are bad days. Some days I have to tell my wife it's not a good day today for me. Uh, sometimes I have to call my dad, and he answers the phone, and I get to yell at him, and he takes it. Um, sometimes I have to do more self care. Um, and say I need to pull back um, because uh, the things that I, I, I'm feeling aren't real to life for me right now. They're, they're building up. If you're struggling with anxiety, if you're struggling with depression, if life feels too much for you, it's okay. There's, it's okay. Um, I want to give you the same advice that my, my grandfather did. It's okay to get help. My grandfather was the toughest man I ever met in my life. And if he can say, it's okay to go get help. Um, and at his age, don't, don't be afraid to get help. And don't take as long as he did to get help. I'm telling you that as well. Don't be afraid. It's okay. Um, I want to thank the panel today. Will you give them a round of applause? Uh, Next month, we will be back here again, and we'll have a conversation on addictions. I encourage you to like us on Facebook, uh, search discussion over dinner. 
uh, we'll be posting different things about the, uh, uh, this event. We'll post the clips. We'll post the whole um, uh, video. We'll post the podcast. Um, and uh, come next week or come next month and uh, we'll have another great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. And we hope that you are able to have a good meal, break bread with people here and learn a little bit more about how we can make a big impact in Laporte. So thank you and have a good night. This is our home. I came to listen to you, to talk with you. Cause I don't want to be a stranger to find hope with you, to grow with you. And whether we are different or same, I want to know your name. Discussion over dinner is sponsored and underwritten by State Street Community Church and the Peck Center.